8: From, Amari, Christian, Skyler, Caitlin, Nolette,
1: Jordan, Antonio, Eddie,
0: and the Tom Sumner program.
2: Hi, I'm U.S. Senator Debbie Stabenow, and I'm listening to the Tom Sumner Show.
3: Hey, good morning, everybody. Welcome to the show. I'm Tom Sumner. We've got a good one in store. It's Wednesday, which means Armchair Politics is coming up in about an hour for two hours of commentary and analysis on uh, local, state, and national headlines from the world of politics and current events with our roundtable regulars, Paul Rosicki and Henry Hatter, joined today by uh, Armchair Politics alumnus Wes uh, Whitaker will be joining us. And uh, that's coming up in just a little bit, but we're going to talk about extremism in the military first with Megan McBride, a research analyst with CNA, and uh, one of the uh, co-authors of a new report from CNA about that very subject. But uh, it seems we have a few minutes, and, and whenever I have a few minutes, I like to squeeze in a little Christmas music this time of year. And, uh, of course, our Christmas music is better than everybody else's because it's local. But this one seems especially timely since it's just less than 12 days until Christmas. So we're going to hear uh, Flint's own Stephanie talking about uh the season and uh, the 12 days of Christmas. We're going to have some more Christmas music throughout the show today.
8: On the first day of Christmas, my true love gave to me a partridge in a pear tree. On the second day of Christmas my true love sent to me Two turtle doves and a partridge in a pear tree On the third day of Christmas my true love gave to me Three French hens, two turtle doves, and a partridge in a pear tree On the fourth day of Christmas my true love gave to me Four calling birds, three French hens, two turtle doves, and a partridge in a pear tree. On the fifth day of Christmas my true love gave to me five golden wreaths. Four calling birds, three French hens, two turtle doves, and a partridge in a pear tree. On the sixth day of Christmas, my true love gave to me six geese are laying, five golden wreaths. Four calling birds, three French hens, two turtle doves, and a partridge in a pear tree. On the seventh day of Christmas, my true love gave to me seven swans are swimming, six geese are laying, five On the ninth day of Christmas my true love gave to me Nine ladies waiting, eight maids a-milking, Seven swans a-swimming, six geese a-laying, Five golden rings, Four calling birds, three French hens, two turtle doves, And a partridge in a pear tree. On the tenth day of Christmas my true love gave to me Ten lords a-leaping, nine ladies waiting, eight maids a-milking, seven swans a-swimming, six geese a-laying, five golden rings. Four calling birds, three French hens, two turtle doves, and a partridge in a pear tree. On the eleventh day of Christmas my true love gave to me Eleven pipers piping, ten birds a-leaping, nine ladies waiting, eight maids a-milking, seven swans a-swimming, six geese a-laying, five golden rings Four calling birds, three French hens, two turtle doves, and a partridge in a pear tree on the twelfth day of Christmas, my true love sent to me Twelve drummers drumming, eleven pipers piping, Ten lords a-leaping, nine ladies waiting, Eight maids a-milking, seven swans a swimming, Six geese a-laying, five golden rings. Four calling birds, three French hens, two turtle doves, And a partridge in a pet tree. I gotta stop
9: a minute.
3: Hey, welcome back, everybody. This is the Tom Sumner program, and it's been almost a year since the January 6th insurrection. And of the 600-plus people charged in the attack on the U.S. Capitol, over 12% had some military experience. Um, Considering the fact that extremism in the military is a very real threat to our national security, um, a new uh, report from CNA is out suggesting a novel approach, and here to talk about that and more is CNA's research analyst and a co-author of the report Megan McBride. Hi, Megan. Welcome to the show.
1: Thanks so much for having me, Tom. Um,
3: let's talk about uh, one of the one of the elements in the report is talking about the importance of updating the definition of extremist activities. Um, what? what would that new definition look
1: like? Yeah, so this is a really interesting question. The The way that the Department of Defense has approached it now, there, there isn't a definition of extremism itself. There's a definition of the prohibited extremist activities, right? So this includes things like advocating for extremist doctrines or ideologies or advocating for the use of force or violence or criminal activity. Um, and we don't know what the update will look like. The uh, Countering Extremism Working Group has been tasked with this uh, with this uh, with this kind of tricky work, and we haven't heard from we haven't uh, seen their final report yet. It hasn't come out, so it's it's not really clear how they'll they'll update it or what the changes would be. Um, and that'll be that revelation will be, I think, important in sort of charting the path forward for the military.
3: Well, in the in the report, it talks about the DoD's long history of extremism among its ranks, but it talks a lot about the commonalities between sexual harassment and assault and racial extremism. Um, How much of it is about political extremism and how much of it is about these other issues of sexual and racial extremism?
1: Sure. So this is a good question. So, you know, as you mentioned, it's been almost a year since the January 6th insurrection. Um, And that that event was not precipitated by racial extremism. It was a different kind of extremism. In this particular report, we chose to focus on racial extremism for two reasons. Um, The first is that... uh, uh, people have really been, the, the Department of Defense has really been uh, concerned about racial extremism over the last uh, couple of years. They've identified white supremacy as a, as a real threat. Um, and the second is that the Department of Defense talks about both racism and extremism together often. They say things like um, the Secretary of Defense, for example, has, uh, has, has said that uh, both extremism um, and discrimination are, are a problem for, for, the, for our nation's armed services. So we focused, it, we focused on racial extremism, and our idea was to ask ourselves, what has the Department of Defense done in the past that they could learn from? Right, learning from the past is, is, a, is a great way to get ahead when tackling a new challenge. And we thought that one of the things that the Department of Defense had done in the past, a, a previous challenge that they had faced, was that of sexual harassment and sexual assault. and why they ha- Well, they haven't really... Nailed that—that that the solution to that. that that's an evolving. Uh, I, you know,
3: solutions. I was going to ask that, Megan. I was going to ask, you know, how successful they've been with their efforts with regard to uh, sexual harassment and assault.
1: Yeah, you're right. That there's been some very serious critiques that they haven't been successful. Um, that that um, that they haven't solved this problem at all. And in fact, the a recent a 2021 report. Um, called for some major changes to be made, and both um, the Secretary of Defense and President, have en- the President Biden have endorsed some of those changes. Um, we, I don't think the, the answer here is to copy-paste what they're doing for sexual assault and sexual harassment. <laughs> uh, that, would, that would just not work. Uh, but there are some things that they've done to deal with that, those challenges that are totally relevant to the challenge of racial extremism. I'll, I'll give you one example. One of yeah, the please. things they've done... Um, to tackle sexual harassment and sexual assault is put in place a more robust reporting system, right? So one of the great things about this is it's meant that the Department of Defense has a better idea of how often sexual harassment and sexual assault occur. They know better now than they did 10 years ago how serious the problem is. Well, we don't know that about racial extremism in the military. There's no, there's no system to collect that data. So this is one of the places where I think the Department of Defense, and this is what our report is arguing, the Department of Defense could use that, that technique they developed for sexual harassment and sexual assault, to look at this problem of extremism. We need a reporting system so that we can figure out how big of a problem this really is.
3: You know, you talk about uh, some of the similarities between uh, racial uh, extremism, and also um, sexual harassment and assault. And we're learning uh, as as we come to grips with systemic racism in institutions in this country like the military that there are really uh, two kinds, one that gets attention and one that doesn't, and that's explicit and implicit bias. How much of the extremism in the military is explicit and how much of it is implicit?
1: Yeah, so this is a great language to really think about, Tom. Um, one of the things that we're arguing in the report is that focusing on the, the really explicit things, the, you know, the, uh, the guy who attended for a, a Klan rally, for example, and called for the use of violence, Overlooks a lot of far quieter forms and expressions of racism. Um, this is something that the military does much better when they think about sexual harassment and sexual assault. They they say to the they say that they understand that there's a link between sexist jokes, which sort of create an environment that says it's it's okay to be sexist, and and sexual assault. Right, not that the same person will do those two things, but that these are connected. Um, and and we think the same is true for racial extremism that. That a racist joke, which is a a quieter version of of, uh, racial extremism than attending a KKK rally, is connected, that, that we need to think about that whole spectrum of activity.
3: More about extremism in the military with CNA research analyst Megan McBride straight
1: ahead. Hello out there, everybody. It's me, Tigger. ti double G
0: E R. That spells Tigger. And don't forget to remember to listen to Tom Sumner's program
2: on account of because he's so bouncy. <laughs>
0: Joe Vi from the Blue Lions. Dan Thling Congressman Dan Kildee. Alexander Sandra actor comedian Jonah Pody Woodrow Stanley U.S Senator Debbie Stabenow.
4: state Senator Jim Anna comedian Brian McCree.
0: The unknown comic
4: Mark Farner and Tom I want you to know
1: Tom's my friend you have always got great questions and you know the material and you, and you care about it and it's uh, it's that's impressive
6: nice to be with you Tom
1: and I admire you for reading all of that I
3: haven't read the whole thing I've got willing to admit
0: that <laughs> hey
3: Tom this is my favorite interview all you, you, <laughs> it's like having coffee at the kitchen table with you.
0: Tune in Monday through Friday from 9 to 12 right here on 92.1 of a Kind. And check out our website at TomSumnerProgram.com. From
10: Alicia, Elena, Gabriella, Erica.
0: And the Tom Sumner Program.
11: This is Congressman Dan Kildee, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program.
3: More about extremism in the military with CNA research analyst Megan McBride straight ahead. When you were doing this report, Megan, what kinds of things do you think can be learned from the military addressing these issues for the rest of us?
1: That is a really fantastic question. I think that... um that the challenges the military faces, uh, unfortunately, um, mean that, that their solutions will have to be unique. Um, so one of the differences between, say, the military, for example, and the general population, is that, uh, you know, as, a, as an American citizen, we have First Amendment rights to express ourselves. E- even if the things we want to say are um, odious or hateful, um, but the military can come in and say, you know, th- we're, we're an institution, uh, you joined us voluntarily, and that's against our values, and and we don't we don't sort of allow that within our institution.
3: Well, um, and the military, that, the military has, has the military has a top down um, uh, uh, sort of um, oh, what's the word I'm looking for? Discipline that you know c- it can't really be enforced throughout American culture and society so maybe they're in a position to make bigger changes initially that the rest of us can learn from i I, I think that's kind of what i was getting at they can they can order some of these changes but is that effective
1: yeah i don't i don't know if it'll be effective tom but but i would i i can't imagine um my hope would be that it would at least be helpful Right, um, I think I think you're right. The military can say well, this is no longer tolerable. It is it is un-American to be racist, uh, uh, and we're not going to sort of tolerate that within our ranks anymore. And and the hope, I guess, would be that that would maybe trickle out, trickle out from the military as an institution, and 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 have a broader impact. Um, but but I think you're right. That certainly that top-down hierarchical model won't work for America writ large, um, which is why we wrote specifically about the military uh, um, and, and what the military itself could do, uh, as they have, uh, I think, more power to change, to change this and to tackle this. Um, it, they also have a responsibility, I think, to, to ensure that everybody in the military is working in a safe and respectful environment. Um, and, and that gives them a sort of a call, a call, a call to action for them, uh, for the military to, to pick up this challenge.
3: You know, it's it's not possible for society at large to um, require certain kinds of behavior the way it is in the military, but perhaps the military could raise the, the standards of conduct as an example.
1: Yeah, that's certainly possible. I think I think that the the sort of uh, follow-on impacts of the military uh tackling this problem are really hard to predict. But at the very least, uh I think that the call that that's been made and I think the call that the Secretary of Defense has made has been that um that the military has a responsibility to address this problem for itself. Um that the military owes the people who have chosen to serve this nation, right? These the, the people that have made this tremendous sacrifice for us, it owes them a, a healthy environment to work in, uh, a safe environment in which they feel respected and they're able to sort of work with dignity. Um, and uh, it's not good for the military. It's not good for unit cohesion. It's not good for morale if uh, racial extremism is sort of permitted within the ranks. That, that is, uh, you know, racial, racial extremism in the ranks is not compatible with a work environment of uh, dignity and respect.
3: Because a lot of this behavior is implicit or on the down low, how do you research for a report like this?
1: So that's a, that's a really interesting question. I think that in this particular report, um, you know, I mentioned a few minutes ago, there's not a lot of data on this at the moment. Uh, there yeah, was congressional that's... testimony about this, about the, the lack of data. Uh, and I think that's what you're raising, right? How do we figure out what the problem is?
3: Yeah, um, if, if reporting isn't being done, there's no collection of information to go by. Um, did you have to interview people? You know, how, how do you... How do you find case studies to put together a report like this?
1: No, it's, it's a really interesting question, and I would say it's one of the most significant challenges that we're facing when we, when we think about this problem. If we don't, if we don't have any data, how do, we, how do we even know how big the problem is? There are a lot of anecdotal pieces of data out there, stories sure. about extremism in the military, um, but I think in this particular report, we didn't we didn't focus so much on case studies as we focused on the sort of structure of the problem. That's that's really abstract, right? So uh, another way to kind of think about that would be to say um, we were less concerned with um, uh, focusing on the data itself because we didn't have any. But we wanted to think about what kind of data we would need. Um, and so what we were saying is, it's not enough to just collect data on the the sort of uh, active-duty members who show up at at, at things like extremist rallies. We also need to be collecting data on racial discrimination in the workplace, on racist jokes in the workplace, on racial harassment in the workplace. Um, So this this report was less about sort of documenting what has happened and a little bit more about sort of outlining what we should be documenting so that when the military finally does kind of come up with a, a, a plan for this, Our call has been for them to think about it in a really broad way, think about everything that falls under this category, and not just about the the people who are doing the worst of the worst.
3: And how does the military address issues like this? Does it just become part part of the handbook?
1: So the, so the way the military has addressed sexual harassment, sexual assaultment has been evolving. Um, you know, the, the military uh, will issue rules and guidelines and regulations and directives that are, that are, are relevant to, to the issue. And that's the same case for this. So over the years we've seen an, an evolution in how the military has treated this. Starting with um, guidelines that were issued, and then those guidelines slowly became more explicit regulations and then um, so it's not really clear what the next step will be. Um, the military has a lot of options at its disposal for how to uh, tackle this issue and i, I don't know what, what choices they'll make
3: megan what what triggered um, the report
1: yeah so it, it, I think in in a Despite the fact that January 6th wasn't about racial extremism, you—you know—you opened our, our conversation today with precisely the thing that triggered this this report, which is the insurrection at the Capitol. Um, I think that uh, the Department of Defense had already been concerned about extremism in the ranks at the end of 2020 during the previous administration. They had started to look at this issue, but the January 6th insurrection was, uh, a, I think, a, a call to action and a. You know, twelve percent of those being charged have a military background, and that that is an, uh, a that troubling. In, does, that is a troubling statistic.
3: Does that include law enforcement people as well?
1: No, it doesn't. Um, See, one uh, of the troubling, it,
3: the, you know, one of the troubling things from that was the number of people that were in or had been in the military, but also were in or had been in law enforcement.
1: No, you're right. The, uh, I haven't seen a, a percentage around law enforcement, but I know that at least 20 people, uh, who, 20 of the people who have been charged have a law enforcement background of some time, either currently are police officers or retired police officers. Um, and I think the problems look, the simil- look similar, right, which is to say it is also troubling and problematic to have uh, racial extremism in the ranks of our police. That, that also undermines uh, everybody's right to a, a healthy and safe environment and it it, it also presents a, a security challenge
3: and while some of the rhetoric surrounding the insurrection on January sixth a year ago was political in nature in terms of you know ad- addressing the outcome of an election and and all of that um is it is it fair to say that white supremacy played a starring role in that event, even though it was not targeted racially as such?
1: You know what? It's not clear to me that January 6th itself was united by a, a, a single ideology like that. What I can say, though, is that... Um, Regardless of what what administration we're talking about, the Department of Defense, and, and like I said, this is true for our current Secretary of Defense, but also the previous Secretary of Defense who served under a different administration has have expressed concern about white supremacy and racial extremism in the ranks this is a really this is a fundamentally bipartisan issue right which is to say nobody wants racial extremism in the ranks of the military uh, and addressing it is something that uh, isn't limited to a specific administration or political party
3: you know it was a fairly short time ago that we had an african American president as commander in chief um, did Barack Obama's presidency make things better or worse with regard to racial extremism in the military?
1: This is a really interesting question, but it brings us back to our core problem, which is that we don't have any data. And because we now, don't have any data on, on how much of this is happening, we actually can't say if it's gotten better or worse over the years. Um, I think ultimately if we do collect some data that'll be a question that uh you know political scientists and research analysts look into but but right now we just don't know.
3: You know legislation over the last 40 or 50 years some would argue has made race relations better in the US that that there is some improvement going on. Um can you, without the data, make any um, observations about the progress that has been made in the military since, say, World War II? Uh,
1: it's really like you know, you you as you said, we don't we don't have any data. What I can tell you is that the Department of Defense's approach to the problem has evolved considerably. Um, so in 19 in, – I'll, I'll give you a really sort of good example of this evolution. In, in the 1980s, um, the Secretary of Defense issued a directive, right, in which they said um, that they discouraged service members from participating in white supremacist groups. It, it wasn't an official ban. It was a discouragement. And that was – that was that happened in 1986, in 2009, though, much more recently, um, the, Met, the Department of Defense prohibited activities that involved uh, advocating supremacist ideologies. So I think that's a place where you can see uh, an evolution in how the Department of Defense has thought about this problem and how seri- and how, uh, how, they're, how uh, seriously they're um, uh, changing their policies over the years, transitioning from a discouragement of activity in the, in the mid-'80s to a prohibition in the in the early 2000s. Um, but it, but it, the, the sort of scope of time you're talking about is, is so significant. Uh, it's, it, and again, without any data, it's really hard to say what impact these policies have had um, on, on de- decreasing military extremism, racial extremism in the military without the data to back it up.
3: In this report, um, clearly you talk about some of the problems that exist and recommend that more data be collected but what are some are are there recommendations contained in the report for policies and procedures that might help over and above the collection of more data?
1: No, absolutely. So we identified what we thought were uh, uh, five key recommendations and these are in the report. One of them is the collection of data. Um, Another recommendation we have is to improve the quality of training. Around, uh, uh, around issues related to racial extremism, right, to provide evidence-based training to service members about know, what, what constitutes, um, about a, a sort of a constellation of issues related to this. Y- you mentioned implicit and explicit racism. Uh, we might talk about implicit and ex- uh, implicit bias, th- things like this, to, but to improve the quality of training around this topic. Um, that, that's another one of our recommendations. And, and the, the second half of the report kind of goes through some of these, indeed.
3: In the process of addressing these issues, might the military um, develop training and policies and procedures that that might help with other things like uh, the the high rate of suicide among active and inactive uh, military people?
1: This is a, that's a really interesting question. It, I think that um, it's, it's, a, it's a little too speculative for me to provide a firm answer. Um, I think maybe in the best-case scenario, Tom, yes. Uh, I'm, you know, I'm not trying to put you on the
3: spot. I'm just, I'm just wondering when you solve one problem, does it help create some building blocks for addressing other problems that we know
1: exist? Yes. Yeah, so, so, Tom, that's exactly what we're hoping to do here, right, which is to say, look at how the military has, I wouldn't go so far as to say they've solved the problem of sexual assault and sexual harassment, but look at how they've tried to solve that problem and use that to solve another problem. Um, in the best case scenario, I would, I would love to say that the, the response that the military develops to deal with this problem would help with other problems um but i uh you know that that training hasn't been written yet uh and i i don't want to get too hopeful
3: <laughs> understood um as you were gathering the information for this report were there things that took you completely by surprise
1: there were things that took me completely by surprise um it, particularly i think in the the historical part of this report um one of the things uh, oh, you know, we did when we looked at this report was look at the history of racial extremism in the military. And, and one of the things that took us by surprise, uh, just as one example, is that we found that in 1923, the Klan um, formed a uh, chapter aboard the USS Tennessee called U.S. Navy Klan Number 1. Um, uh, which was very yeah, surprising to me. It hadn't it hadn't even occurred to me that that would be permitted. Um, obviously, certainly wouldn't be permitted. The permitted these days, but uh, that was uh, one of the more surprising tidbits of data we came across in, in researching this report.
3: A- any others that come to mind? I, that's that's just stunning, actually.
1: Yeah, I thought I, th- I thought so too. Um, yeah, I think that. Um, one of we actually found a a, a long and troubling uh, sort of history of the Klan trying to recruit from the military. So um, I guess in 1979 they held a rally in Virginia Beach, and their hope was to sort of attract some of the. There was apparently about 50,000 service uh, military uh, personnel stationed in the area at the time, um, and their hope was to it, to attract folks, uh, commanders at the at the at the at of those service members. Um, said that the rally was off-limits, and service members weren't allowed to go, but people went anyway. Um, And one of the things that actually surprised me about this is not that the Klan would have a rally trying to recruit people, not that commanders would, you know, prohibit attending, and not that a couple of people would sneak off, but apparently nobody was reprimanded for doing so, Um, uh, that nobody got in trouble for uh, disobeying that that sort of uh, guidance. And according to a military spokesperson at the time, um, and this this is I'm going to give you a short direct quote: uh, the Navy's policy is that membership in the Klan is no more illegal than membership in the Elks. Um, so that was a that's a quote from 1979. Obviously, way out of date at this point. And the Navy's policy and the military's <laughs> policy on this has changed considerably.
3: I, I uh, can't help thinking that sounds like something from the fifties.
1: It does, right? That, and that was what surprised me about it. Um, the Klan the and the Elks in the same sentence. Uh, 1979 feels far more, far too modern for that kind of a policy. Um, uh, it does sound like something out of the 50s. I think that's right.
3: Megan, I, um, I really appreciate you spending time with me and the listeners this morning to share some of these thoughts and for the study itself. Um, and I always give guests an opportunity to, to let listeners know where they can find out more about what we're talking about in your work, past, present, and future. Is there a website that people can go to to find the report, or, or maybe even the, the summary of the report that you and uh, a co-author published?
1: No, uh, thanks for asking, Tom. There, there is a website. It can be found at, um, uh, on, on, our, on our, our website at www.cna.org. Um, I there's a ridiculously long URL for the report itself that uh, <laughs> uh, I wouldn't even begin to try to read out to everybody. But, um, but if you search on that site, you'll be able to find uh, what you're looking for. Um, so what's,
3: what's next, Megan? What, uh, what are you digging into now for, for a future report?
1: Uh, that's, a, that's a great question. I think we have a, a couple of things that we're working on. We're um, looking at some uh, extremist activity overseas um, and, and also still thinking about this question, this question of uh, what the military can do and, and what the next steps might be. We're, we're eagerly, eagerly awaiting the, um, the release of the government's report on this so that we can see what, what they've proposed and then uh, hopefully respond to it and continue the conversation.
3: Well, Megan, thanks so much, and uh, keep up the good work.
1: Yeah, thanks so much for, uh, for having me, Tom, and for uh, being willing to talk about and tackle this really sticky, sticky and complicated topic.
3: All right, take care. That was uh, Megan McBride. She is a research analyst in CNA's Center for Stability and Development. And... Uh, We've been talking about a new report from CNA talking about extremism in the military. We'll have more of the Tom Sumner program straight ahead. Slay bells ring, I listen in the Lady Lane's
9: nose, a
7: beautiful sign, we're happy tonight. Walking in a winter wonderland Gone away away is the bluebird Here to stay is the new bird He sings a love song as we go along Walking in a winter wonderland In the meadow we can build a snowman And pretend that he is far so He'll say, are you married? Say no, man, but you can do the job when you're in town. Later on, we'll conspire as we dream by the fire to face and the plans that we made. Walking in a winter wonderland in the meadow, we can build a snowman, snowman, and pretend that he's a circus clown. We'll have lots of fun with Mr. Snowman, until the other kiddies I can down. When it snows, ain't it thrilling, though your nose gets a-chillin'. We'll frolic and play the Eskimo way, walkin' in a winter wonderland, walkin' in a winter
5: We wish you a Merry Christmas, from the
9: Tom Sumner Show, oh
5: yeah. Hi, this is Joe By from the Blue Lions, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program.
11: Or call the Foot River Watershed Coalition at
9: 810-767-649. The time of summer Happy holidays.
0: from The Tom Sumner Program.
11: Hey, this is First Ward City Councilman Eric Mays, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program.
5: jing a jing Jingle bell, jingle bell, jingle bell rock. Jingle bell chime in jingle bell time, dancing and prancing in Jingle Bell Square in the frosty air. What a bright time! It's the right time to rock the night away. Hey, jingle bell time. It's a swell time To go riding to go in a one-horse sleigh Giddy up, jingle, jingle bells, pick up your feet Jingle around the clock Mix and that a mingle and a be because that's, that's a jingle bell rock What a right time, time. it's a right time right To rock the night away, away. Jingle bell time is a swell time to go, to go gliding in a one-horse sleigh. Giddy-up, jingle horse, pick up your feet. Jingle around the clock. Mix and mingle in a jingling beat, cause that's a jingle bell rock. That's a, That's, a That's a jingle bell. That's a jingle bell. That's a jingle bell. Jingle bell rock. Everybody's doing the jingle bell
0: rock. Jingle bell rock. You pilots, get off my lawn. We're trying to do a radio show down here. It's a Tom Sumner program, don't you know? Come on. Come on, get out of here!